If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 25. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, or I would go before you again and say, perhaps if you're only using it on your cell phone uh, to keep yourself from distractions, there is a, a Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can borrow that Bible. Uh, and you can find Matthew chapter 6 in the passage that we will be referring to this morning on page 761 of that Bible. Uh, if you go through any introduction to public speaking, they will begin with a number of very important tips for you about diction and timing and pacing. And one of the most important things that they're going to tell you is that whenever you speak in front of an audience, you have to keep in mind the audience to whom you're speaking when you tailor your message for them. So if you are bringing something before people, if those are a bunch of scholars, you're going to speak differently than you would to a bunch of football coaches, which would be different than if you were speaking to a bunch of homeschooling moms. Each, each audience might have its a different lingo and different things that you should do in order to keep their attention so that they would pay attention to exactly what you want them to pay attention to. Anybody who's preached overseas or in foreign context knows exactly what I'm talking about. You might have a sermon that you take from here and, and move to China, move to Brazil, move to a foreign group here in the United States. And a lot of the references that you're going to have, illustrations that you're going to use, are not going to map well onto them. I should know, last week I used Knight Rider a lot in my sermon illustrations, and that clicked with like two people in here. So bad, do a better job than that, right? So this is the whole intention behind speaking to people is knowing where your audience is and trying to reach them on a, on a kind of a personal level. Use illustrations and examples that will help them and words that they will kind of follow along with. If we understand that, that each audience sort of has to have its own set of words and own lingo to be used for it, it is quite amazing what Jesus is about to say at the end of here of chapter 6. It's brilliant, actually. The words themselves are insightful and helpful, as we hopefully will see. But I think that part of their brilliance is that it can be understood and used to two completely different audiences that stand on two completely opposite ends of a spectrum. For some in here, and for many who hear these words, these are to stand and should probably stand as a chastisement. They are meant to perform the role of 2 Timothy 3.16, where the word reproofs and rebukes and corrects us. They are meant to set us straight, to wake us up, to be a splash of cold water. For others, though, the very same words are meant to be nothing short of a comfort. They're more reminiscent of Isaiah 40, where Isaiah is told to comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to them. They're meant to be a, a warm blanket on a cold night. Jesus is brilliant, and the words that he gives to us here can fulfill both of those things at the same time. They're, they're flexible and adjustable to the hearer. Unfortunately for you all, I am not that brilliant, I am fully incapable of doing both things at the same time. And so what you are going to get today will amount to two different sermons, or better yet, maybe two different exhortations from the exact same text this morning, meant for one group to be cutting and cold, 
to be that splash of cold water, to be a chastisement, and for the other to be warm and comforting, to remind them of God's good love for them. Let us hear these brilliant words of our Lord this morning from Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 25. There Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, who you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of our God. Before we begin to think about these words, I think that this would be a good time to take stock kind of where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, because when we hear these words, coming off of the text from last week, we had a summary and a conclusion to a, to a section, and it's easy then to think that these are sort of standalone words that have very little to do with the kinds of things that Jesus has just been talking about. I, I want to disabuse that notion if any of you have it, and so it helps to kind of summarize what's going on so far in the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon begins with Beatitudes, which, if, if nothing else, is there to show that the blessing of God, the, the fortunate state of people, is not tied to the things of the world. That those things that people often associate with worldly good and therefore with blessing and with being in a fortunate place are not the things that necessarily attain to the kingdom of God. So those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek, even those who are persecuted— are said to be in a fortunate state, are said to be favorable or blessed by God. Because that state of the world is not necessarily the right state or the state of the kingdom of God, Jesus then presses us to achieve a greater righteousness, that the righteousness that the world achieves is not good enough for his people. We need to go beyond that. The scribes and the Pharisees have a way of approaching righteousness, and Jesus says, you've got to do better than that. The rest of chapter 5 is meant to highlight how we act differently than them. They are, in a sense, bifurcated and split. They know that with their bodies, there are things that they must not do. They are not to murder with their hands, and they are not to commit adultery with their bodies. But with their hearts, they seem to be free to engage in those very desires. That anger is okay, hatred is okay when it's over enemies, lust is okay. And Jesus wants to make sure that we are not following in their footsteps. The summation found in the last verse of chapter 5 is is meant to sort of collapse all of it together. That God is complete and whole. 
He doesn't feel something that he won't act out or act out something that he doesn't think he should do. But God always acts from the fullness of his character. And Jesus says, so then should you. If you are not to murder with your hands, you shouldn't have anger with your heart. If you are not to kill your enemies, but rather love people, then you are to love them fully, even those who are your enemies. Chapter 6, then, changes a bit. Jesus there doesn't focus on our actions, but rather our intentions. You'll notice that he doesn't say, you know, you've heard it said that you should fast, but I say to you, or you've heard it said that you ought to pray, but I say to you. Rather, he assumes that those actions are the actions that you're going to do. You're, you're going to follow and giving to those who are less fortunate. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. Those actions are right. But in chapter 6, he focuses on changing the motivations. You're not motivated by earthly rewards. You're not motivated by what you see here in the earth, but rather you are to be motivated by laying up treasures in heaven. And he finishes by saying, if you rightly see the reality of the world, if you rightly know that God will indeed keep that reward for you, then you will not seek the reward of the earth. You cannot serve God and the things of the earth, money, kind of boiling it down to mammon or money. Here, though, at the end of chapter 6, Jesus is going to make that point and make it even more fully. Because you could leave what he says about treasures and money and think that he's just talking about all the extra stuff in life, that, that when it comes to anything above our basic needs, we should lift our eyes to heaven and assume that, that God's going to give it to us. But, but when it comes to these most basic things, clothing and food, we, we need to make sure that we are doing all we can to get what we need and have what we need for life. Treasures and money seem to be just extra things. Maybe this sort of heavenward focus doesn't include the things that we need in our everyday life. Those, perhaps, we are able to fret over and to pursue like the Gentiles and pursue like those who have no belief. And Jesus is meant here to disabuse us of that notion. And for many of us, our failure to have that heavenly focus means that we ought to be in and we are indeed in for a word of chastisement. And that is the first thing that comes to many of us. The ESV uses the word anxious here. Do not be anxious about your life. The word itself covers a lot of ground in English. This is why other translations use the word worry. It can be, it can be a light concern or fret or anxiety about something, all the way to the sort of gripping panic and anxiety that other people have in life. The word kind of covers the gambit there. The word that Jesus speaks here are stinging for many. And for those many, Jesus is commanding you, do not fret about the things of life. Don't worry about them. Don't be anxious about them. Don't be concerned about them. And he sums this up with the examples of eating and drinking and clothing. It's not just the extras of life, those things that are above and beyond, but the very basis of life. I would say that, that those words, especially the commanding of them to people, especially like us, who frankly, regardless of where you are, are probably in a position of great prosperity compared to the vast majority of people that Jesus is talking to is even stronger. We have these things. Refrigerators full of food, closets full of clothes, and still we worry and fret and pay so much attention to these things. We worry about what we will eat. We worry about what we'll wear. 
We spend far too much time and deliberation over such things. We worry about droughts and floods, about shipping lines and supermarkets, making sure that they've stocked everything that we need. And Jesus is incredibly forceful and clear. Stop. You don't need to. And what's more than that, it is unfaithful to have so much fret and concern over things that God will give you. He says, why don't you stop and consider for just a second the birds of the air? Birds of the air have no ability to sow to make sure that they can gather crops. And they they can't, even if they could sow, gather those crops. And even if they could gather those crops, they could not store them. So what do they do? They have to get up every morning and rely upon the Lord to provide for them. They simply go out and eat, daily needing the Lord to provide for them. Why, then, if birds... Small, insignificant creatures, frankly, are provided for like this. Why do we not believe that we will be provided for like this? Why are we so concerned with where our food is, where it comes from, and how much we will have? The birds are fed by God without any of those concerns. Do we honestly, in our fretting, do so because we think that he loves the birds more than he loves us? And we're not even just concerned with quantity. Oftentimes, when we are concerned about our food, we're concerned with the quality of it. Do you doubt the good gift of God? You fret over the quality of the food as though you don't trust God to give you good enough things. Sometimes God gives me things and it just doesn't doesn't quite meet my standards. We act as though God cares for the well-being of birds leaves us to our own devices, as though he ignores us on these most basic of things. And what good does such concern do, Jesus asks? Does our fretting make our food appear? Does Does it add a single hour to your life? Does it add anything to you? Does your unbelief in God's goodness, in God's providential care for you, do anything for you? Don't overlook the flowers of the field either. Jesus points out that these these flowers that bloom wildly, especially in the the backdrop of Israeli terrain, which is a little bit rougher, a little bit rockier, not nearly as green as Michigan, even without the rain. They're unexpected and brilliant as they come up from the ground, and yet they do absolutely nothing to bring this about. They don't go out and get the dye and the wool. They don't knit. They don't sew. They don't prepare. They do nothing. They simply grow because God gives them the growth. Why spend so much time picking out clothes, buying this, not buying that, trying on this and putting that back in the closet in order to gain beauty? Solomon kept nothing from himself. Ecclesiastes 2, considered to be written by Solomon, highlights how much Solomon said, I'm just under the sun, going to gain as much as I can. I'm going to fill myself with everything I possibly can in the world. That one chapter highlights that Solomon kept nothing from himself, including pleasure, laughter, wine, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, pools, slaves, herds, flocks, silver, gold, songs, singers, concubines. He gathered in all of them. And Jesus says, and all of the wonders that Solomon was able to get, 
and all the effort that he expended to get him when the world was laid at his feet, these small wildflowers just blooming all on their own that never strove to get any of that were always more brilliantly arrayed than all of the works of Solomon could ever make him. The flowers just were because God made them so. If this is true, why fret about beauty and worry about clothing? If God clothes the flowers, which are ultimately waste, they will dry up and they be, be brought in with the harvest just like all the other things that are going to be burned. How much more would he clothe you? When we act like this, we put ourselves above God. We exchange the beauty of heaven for the beauty of earth. We are people of little faith. There, there's some faith, but it's so small. In the end, we don't really trust God. We give lip service to him. We talk well of our trust in him. We speak of it. When people ask, we will tell them. But our walk and our worries betray us. We demonstrate that we don't really believe that he'll provide all we need and want, so we fret. We dwell on such things. We concern ourselves with them endlessly. Therefore, Jesus says, stop fretting endlessly over these basic things. The questions in verse 31, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The, the context there is that these are just questions that come up continuously in your life. You're nonstop asking yourself these very basic questions. This is what unbelievers do, Jesus said. Why do you act like those who are outside of faith? Why do you act like those who have no faith? The answer is because you have such a little faith. You are concerned about things like this. You fret over things like this because you don't believe enough. The outsiders have to fret because they don't know a God who will give to them all of these things. They don't know a God who is so consistent and good and kind and just that he will provide for them everything they need, not only above and beyond what they hope for, but even the most basic of things. They don't know him. And when you don't trust him for things, when you endlessly fret over them, you're acting like an outsider. Do you not believe that God will provide, that God knows your hearts and your minds and can and will indeed provide what is good for you? Stop such pursuits, Christians. Seek first the kingdom of God. There's balance. should admit there is balance. It's clear that those questions are not all wrong. He doesn't say seek only the kingdom of God. He says seek first the kingdom of God. And it's clear that there's balance. The birds still work. They can't reap, they can't sow, they can't gather into barns, but they still work. The flowers are still expending energy. Jesus doesn't say you're supposed to lay there in bed until the angel of the Lord comes and clothes you like he's your, your butler and you're an English lord or something like that. Joseph was right to prepare for the future in Egypt. These things are not all wrong, but they can become a preoccupation with us. Why do you do what you do? Your everyday life, why do you engage in the things you engage in? Why do you seek the things you seek? What do you spend the vast majority of your time thinking about? And many of you might well answer, well, I, I'll be honest with you, unlike you, pastor, I, I have a life out in the actual world in a real job, 
And, uh, and because of that, I have to have my mind focused on the things of the world. I, I've got to have my mind focused on numbers and figures. I've got to have my, my head around diagrams and schedules and words and parts. Man, it's good. If you work in a field, if you work at a job, you should be focused on that job. But then ask, why is it that you work? Do you work so that you can simply put food on the table? Is it so that you might retire? Do you work for the glory of God? Is your work a pathway for the kingdom? Or is it just there to relieve your fretting and your concern that this day you might go without? Do you simply work because you're worried that tomorrow you won't have anything? And if you've never asked the question, might I suggest that you have just found your answer? Jesus told us that the greatest commandment was pretty clear. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 6, which is where Jesus is getting that answer, goes on to say this from the words of Moses. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The command is never to leave your sight. It's never to waver from you. It is to be in front of you all the days of your life. It's to be on your buildings. It's to be on yourself. It's to be taught to your kids. It's to be memorized and brought into your heart. Keep your focus on God. If you focus on the kingdom as you should, then all of these extra things that you need, the most basic things in life, will be provided for you. Soren Kierkegaard, the great Christian philosopher and author, wrote a story about a man, I think is a fictional story, about a man named Ludwig Fromm, who was trying to get a pastoral position. And in the story, Kierkegaard lays out that he wants this pastoral position, but first, obviously, because of the nature of the church there, he needs a royal appointment to be a pastor. And to get that, he first must pass his exams. And to get that, he must first pass through seminary. And to do that, to be in line with the context of the day, he must first get engaged. And then even before he can get the appointment, he must first preach a sermon. So he enters into the pulpit and preaches on, seek first the kingdom. And the bishop who was there to evaluate him said that the sermon itself was good doctrine, sound and unadulterated. But then he added, does it not seem to your lordship that in this instance, a correspondence between speech and life would have been more desirable. Say, yeah, I'll pursue the kingdom of God, but first let me get some coffee. First let me get some food. First let me get some money. First let my health improve. And Jesus says, put all that aside. Seek first the kingdom of God. We preach a good game. Oftentimes, especially to ourselves, but a game that is simply not true. 
we are in great danger of losing sight of the kingdom of God in, in this area, especially precisely because of our prosperity. Deuteronomy 8, which is really closely attached to Deuteronomy 6, probably speaking on the exact same commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 8 says this, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. This, amongst all of the reasons, especially because we have so much, is one of the reasons why we are due for chastisement from these words. We have failed them in so many ways. And it boils down to one thing. We are so long on worries and concerns and fret over the things that God has given to us in spades, and we are slow to believe and small in faith. So many of us need to be cut by these words. For the word isn't just a sword, two-edged, it is at times a scalpel. And this tumor of fret and worry, Jesus would remove from you and replace it with faith. But we are reminded that such prosperity was not the possession of the people to whom this was first spoken. Their cups were not overflowing and neither were their dressers. They likely had two items of clothing, a pair of sandals, and empty stomachs. This has led to the words that Jesus speaks here being seen as harsh, naive, and ultimately dismissed. Ulrich Lutz writes this. Few gospel texts have evoked such harsh criticism. It is said that every starving sparrow contradicts Jesus, not to mention every famine and every war, that the text gives the appearance of being extremely simple-minded, that it acts as if there were no economic problems, only ethical ones, and that it's a good symbol of the economic naivete which has characterized Christianity in the course of its history, that it is applicable only to the special situation of the unmarried Jesus living with friends in sunny Galilee. These words are cutting, and they can be harsh. But they're not only that. And to hear them only that way, to think that Jesus is only chastising and cutting down and commanding, is misunderstanding them. They are a word of chastisement, but they're also a word of comfort. Some here are likely gripped by fear and anxiety and worries and troubles, not by choice, not because you're choosing to dwell on those things, but because you, you can't help it. You don't want to be like that. It's not that, that you think that it's desirable. You agree that it's not. You want to get rid of it. You don't want to embrace it. You want to resist it. You seek relief from it, but faithfulness just can't come here. You're like the man in Mark 9, asked if Jesus would heal his son. Can you heal? And he says, do you believe? And the man cries out, I believe, but help my unbelief. Many in here are in that position. 
They know they, they worry too much. They know they fret too much. They know that they should hand this over to the Lord. They don't seem to be able to. Jesus does indeed see unbelief here, yes. But he seeks to mend it. He cuts, but he also heals. Look at the birds. God made the birds without any capabilities of being able to prepare or to plan. But he still personally provides for all their needs. You were set out from before the foundation of the world to have the love of God poured out upon you, the mighty and powerful love of God. Should those who have such mighty love given to them worry about such things? Should they have to? Do you think that great kings had their children worrying about where their next meal was going to come from or what kind of clothes they might wear? If the kings of the earth don't have their children worry about it, shouldn't the king of heaven have his children all the more secure? God will provide. And you might even say, I, I, I understand what he is saying in verse 27. I know that, that my anxiety, my worrying, and my fret doesn't, doesn't add a single hour to my life. But Jesus' words in verse 27 mean more than that. They imply strongly that they won't add a single hour to your life, not because they're worthless in and of themselves, but because the help for your life and the hours of your life and the days of your life are provided for you by God already. God needs no help from your worries and your concerns. And God provides for you. Your span of life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the trials and the victories, the difficulties and the mirth all come from the good hand of God. Psalm 139 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as when as yet there was none of them. Worry doesn't add, right? But nothing either can take away from God's providential care of you. The flowers of the field, they're beautiful. And again, these are wildflowers. They're not even cultivated. They're not clipped and arranged. They're not pruned and groaned. Grown, they, they just grow up on their own. And yet their beauty outstretches all that Solomon could reach. Friend, will God not do the same for you? Solomon fretted over it. He worried about it. He worked over it. And he failed. Why be concerned? Will God not take care of you? He will provide for you. If birds and flowers, which are insignificant, they're worth so much less than you, loved so much less than you, looked after with, with so much less fervently than God gives to you, will God not watch over you? He loves you. Even you of little faith. It's not, isn't that God does this just for the mighty in faith? It's not just for those, those mighty heroes of the past that make it into Hebrews 11, right? Who are able to take out entire armies of the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Those who are willing to stand up to kings and queens in power. Those who are willing and prepared to give their lives. 
It's not just for those that God provides. It is for those who have the smallest of faiths. A mustard seed, Jesus says. Insignificant, so small. Yet it is sufficient in the eyes of God. He loves you. You, as with other scholars, might look at this and say, well, that's, that is easy for people who have full stomachs and clothes on their backs to say. It's harder to have that kind of faith when you're lacking daily needs and when you honestly don't know where they're going to come from. But just as God works to make the birds fly to their food, he programs them, he builds them so that they will do this. He does the exact same thing for the flowers. They produce beauty because he has made them to do that. Do we, as the church, not act as God's mercy here? Moved and grown by the Spirit to provide the very things that you need. To provide, to encourage, to pray, to give, and to give comfort as well as money. God has already given provision. He's already given this provision for you in this body before you have even asked. His goodness is there for you, manifested in the lives of his people. And outsiders worry, and rightfully so, because they don't know the wondrous care of the Father, nor the work of the Spirit, nor the life of the Son. They don't know the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, called to faith and called to love and to help give and support others. Jesus here offers the only solution for this type of spiritual malady. It's not action. It's not meditation. It's not simply being optimistic and telling yourself over and over again it's, it's going to be okay. But it is to focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To remember the kindness and the goodness of God to his people. To go back and to read the old stories and to see time and time again how the grace and the mercy of God was poured out upon them. Read it through the Old Testament. Read it in the New Testament. Read it in church history. Read it in biographies. Remember his goodness and his kindness even in your life. Dwell not on the things you lack but on how much God has given to you. Will he not give you all the more on top of that. And Jesus says also, remember his righteousness. Righteousness to do what is right and good and true. What is Jesus saying here but that a father's job is to provide for his children? Today of all days, we come to think about what it means to be a good father. Is not God a good father? And as a good father, he will provide everything that you need. That is his righteousness. It is right and good and true that fathers do just this. God is always righteous. Do well to remember these things, to dwell upon them. Keep them as frontlets. Write them on the doorpost. Teach them to your kids. Keep them in front of you always. And know then, even for those who here ought to be chastised, there is also comfort. Because Christ doesn't need your perfection before he loves you. His provision 
does not only chastise your small faith, but his provision forgives your lack of faith. Jesus died, even while you were an unbeliever and a sinner, that he might bring you back to God. When you were far away, the Father ran to bring you in. We ought to believe. For God is good enough even to forgive those areas of our unbelief. It's there even before you thought to ask, because he's a good father. He's better than the best of our earthly fathers who we recognize and celebrate today. He doesn't chastise you because you're not his. He chastises you because you are his. Hebrews 12 says this, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as children. What children, what child is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons and daughters. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us as we and we respected them. Should we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Friends, Jesus does not cut to scar you and to hurt you, but to heal you. Hosea 6.1, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that we may, he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Friends, the good provision of God is all around you. Yes, you ought to make plans. You ought to gather for the future. There's nothing wrong with being like Joseph but you do so because you trust in God. You do so for the glory of God. You don't act in such ways because you are concerned or because you fret or because you're anxious about the future. Sufficient is today for its own trouble, but yet more sufficient is the grace and the love of God our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, who gave His life to call us to Him who gave his spirit to seal us and will one day give us over to the very glory of God. He dies that we might live. He is beaten so that we might be healed. Be cut if need be, but be healed by the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Trust God the Father, for he is good and kind and loving and provides for everything you need before you even think to ask. Let us pray. Father, what our Lord Jesus has commanded today, we ask that you provide. Help us to set aside the weights of anxiety and fret, of worry, and all sin, sin that clings so closely to us that we might run with endurance the race that is set before us. Help us to turn our eyes to you that we might rightly face this world with faith and seek your glory. May your name be held as holy, and may our daily needs be met. We ask these things for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.